Welcome to Cheek by Giles podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode seven, Design Deep Dive. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over the course of these podcasts, I'm going to be interviewing Declan Donnellan and Nick Ormerod, the director and designer who lead Cheek by Jowl. Over the last 40 years, their productions have toured to over 400 cities with explosive retellings of classical plays. So today, I'm online with Nick Ormerod. Hello, Nick. Hello, Lucy. And how are you doing today? Very well, indeed. The weather's beautiful. What's keeping you busy at the moment? Are there any plays on your bucket list that lockdown is giving you the chance to read? Well, King John... Um, which I've never read and people say is um, definitely worth looking at. And But I find it difficult, frankly, to get into. The plot is, seems to be unbelievably complicated. Yeah, it's quite a design challenge for King John. There's that moment when you have to get Arthur to fall off a castle. Yes, but challenges are like that in a play are all, all rather exciting because they give you problems that have to be solved and that's part of, that's central to design. And if there were no problems, it would be much more difficult. In today's episode, we're going to go on a deep dive through your work as a designer and through Cheek by Gel's uniquely collaborative design process. Now, we found out in episode three that you actually started your collaboration with Declan as an actor at university. So what made you move tracks from acting into design? Well, I'd always been painting and drawing at school and at home. So that was sort of parallel activities. And then I discovered acting at, at school and was became completely stage struck. And that carried on into um, college with Teclan. But to be honest, I found little encouragement as far as my acting was concerned. So I moved over to design, which I haven't regretted, but all the same, I'd love to act. Is there a part that you've never played that you'd love to? Uh, no, no, actually. No, I've never thought that. But actually any part I'd be quite happy with. So we also heard in a previous episode that after your initial studies as a lawyer, you went on to train at the Wimbledon College of Art. So how did your time at Wimbledon affect the way that you think about design? Well, in 100%, I mean, it changed everything. I had no idea about design and I learned kind of everything at Wimbledon. So, you know, I was starting from absolute scratch from studying law to moving over to theatre design. So it was a major change in the way I thought, which, you know, I'm still working on. That was three years. I'm really having to adjust my mental processes. I had to really dismantle trying to be clever and take sort of circuitous, intelligent routes um, into designing but I think that cleverness needed to be basically dismantled. But it was, no, a radical change, which was wonderful and very exciting. And were there any of your teachers at Wimbledon who had a particular influence on you? Well, there were some wonderful teachers at Wimbledon, Malcolm Pride, who, also, who died. David Burroughs taught me a lot. There were some wonderful teachers there. And you learn great skills like scene painting and you have sort of practical hands-on lighting design and costume if you wanted to virtually any aspect you could be submerged in. And you came out with skills. So, no, it was a wonderful training. And then I got a, an actual job once I left Wimbledon and I worked with a, a designer called Mark Negan up in Edinburgh for a season. And that, again, I learned a huge amount. And what do you think were your biggest lessons that you learned in those first professional design jobs? Well, again, I mean, it was just the experience of being in a theatre, in a busy theatre, um, 
and working with him because he spent most of his time with costume and so left me with a lot of the sort of fundamentals of the sets. And we did a lot of work. You know, we were doing, you know, new productions every month, I should think. There were two spaces. There was the Royal Lyceum, which is one of the most beautiful theatres in this country. And um, it had an attached studio theatre. And both were very busy. So we did a lot of work. And obviously, very quickly, you learn a lot. You discover, particularly if you started very small, like we did with the Cheek by Jowl, you, you learn what you need. And you also discover that you can do a lot um, with fairly minimal amount of objects, if you like. But what I did learn um, was that um, you design for a space, basically. And there was a wonderful theatre at Wimbledon with a, an amazing space. And you could throw yourself on the theatre space itself, which provides a lot of energy. Yeah, I think that's true of some of my favourite designs for the theatre, that they don't just design the space for the play on stage, but activate the architecture of the entire auditorium. Exactly. Exactly. And some of the great theatres, if I think of working at the Marley Theatre in St. Petersburg, a tiny space, but sort of extraordinary in that uh, the architecture is slightly odd and unusual. But the shows that come out of there, which are influenced by the space itself, are always fascinating. So we've talked before about how your first design for Cheek by Jowl was influenced by the fact that it was in a tiny space in London, which used to be a morgue. Are there any spaces that you've worked in which have had a particularly strong impact on your work? Well, I think every space that you work in changes what you do. I mean, at the moment, we're based in Moscow at the Pushkin Theatre, and that's a very traditional Italian box, if you like. They like to call it an Italian box in Russia. It's a traditional repertoire theatre. But if you strip out everything on stage you have this wonderful space of ladders and old bits of mechanics and radiators and things which create really atmospheric type of space to work in and i think we were able to use that in measure of measure for example everything was stripped out so you have the actors in this amazingly sculptural space which worked I thought really well for the prison and for the city. Yeah I love the way that your designs often expose the bones of the theatre around them. I mean even in the Night of the Burning Pestle which you did with the Pushkin Theatre where you took us all the way backstage via a video link you take us right to the limits to the, the very walls of the theatre often. Well also in, in if you find that actors are able to touch actual concrete objects as opposed to scenery it, it helps them hugely like being able to touch the pros the actual physical pros proscenium arch of a theater that gives enormous energy and often we've exploded out of the pros into the auditorium but if they can actually make contact with concrete objects it's extraordinary how much energy that gives an actor. Mm, I remember that very first moment in Middleton's Revengers tragedy, which was recently at the Barbican, where right at the very beginning of the show, you brought the lights down really, really, really slowly. So you get this hair-raising moment in the auditorium of something about to begin. And then that first actor walked out and turned on the lights on a switch on the proscenium march. And so he's touching something that was concrete in the world of the audience just as much as it was inside the world of the play. That, funny enough, was very last minute, that particular, because, of course, it's, it's, I'm afraid, false, because it's not a real switch. I mean, it, it was a sound effect and a fake lever, which we did very much at the last minute, because... I realised that, I mean, the whole idea of the Revengers tragedy is kind of set in a TV studio. And we wanted the sense that it was a practical working space. And so they were coming into an empty space to turn the lights on to sort of 
bring it alive was a very last minute decision, but um, I'm glad you think it worked. Yeah, it was fabulous. And talking of space, are there any spaces that you haven't worked in yet that you'd love to design for? I've sometimes had a hankering to do a site-specific work where perhaps you move the audience around through different spaces. So maybe you incorporate the other space, you actually see the other space and move through it. Um, So that's always been a slight hankering of mine. So what for you are the ingredients of a really good theatre design? Well, I think every piece of theatre should ideally be moulded into one. So you should experience it without thinking, oh, what an amazing piece of design. I think a great piece of design disappears into the whole and you come out thinking, that was amazing. But you can't necessarily put your finger on it. And that's the most triumphant piece of design, I think. If you come out thinking, oh, what an amazing, beautiful set, but I really didn't much like the performance, then I think you've kind of failed. I'm not saying it denies great images. I think you can have great images, and there should be great images. So in our episode on space and Shakespeare, we talked about a not-true-but-useful idea which has been heavily influenced by your work as a designer. And that is that the next door space to the one that we see on stage is the most important one for the character. In other words, that the other space is exerting pressure on the one that we can see on stage. So could you speak more about how you've developed that idea? I mean, because we've been out of the rehearsal room for quite a long time now, and now in this lockdown, we've been thinking a lot tangentially about threshold and space. And so that it sort of came as a eureka moment, I think that there is always another space, but the actual importance of the other space came as a as a sort of blinding realisation and that it's a great key for actors because inevitably actors tend to concentrate on their partner, working with their partner, the exact nuances of how they work with their partner. It's, and it's very easy to forget that almost every scene is about another space. It's one of the things I find so exciting about these conversations with you and Declan, which is that your collaboration is truly unique. I don't think I know another director and designer who've worked together in the way that you have for so long. And it's fascinating to see the sort of universal theatre philosophy that you've built together, where space affects the acting and the acting and directing are all about the space and that everything is intertwined, not siloed into different disciplines, which they often can be in theatre processes. So have you got any advice for emerging designers about how to go about setting their own terms of engagement for their creative process, just like you have? My advice would be to be in rehearsal as much as possible. And uh, that's not always possible because sometimes, in particular, the director doesn't necessarily want the designer there very much. And of course, the designer has other concerns, which means that he or she can't be, you know, because they're dealing with costume or bits of property or whatever. But my advice would be to get in there, get in the rehearsal room. And if you've designed a set, you're the one who understands how it works. You need to persuade people and show them how it works and just be there. If you were to look back at the beginning of your career, is there any advice that you wish you'd been able to give yourself then? I think I'm not necessarily the easiest person to deal with. I mean, and partly because I've been spoiled by working with Declan, I think, I think I'm probably have become rather entitled in terms of my contribution. So if I was working with another director now, I think they probably wouldn't put up with me, probably for, not for two seconds, I don't know. But I've been really lucky because I've, I've made mistakes, you know, along the way and learned from them, but again, hopefully in a fairly small way. So um, 
by the time your work gets more exposed, you know, you've, you've made your worst mistakes in the past. And also, we've been incredibly lucky in that we haven't had to produce too much work. I mean, most designers, I think, have to do many productions a year. And the way we work together, Declan and I, has meant that we have more time to think, actually. Yes, my advice would be to make sure that you have time to think. So we found out in episode three that you and Declan like to do what you call going into the woods with the actors, which is a couple of weeks of experiments with the actors several months before rehearsals actually start, which allows you to create a design based on what the actors offer, which is a pretty remarkable way of going about it. Now, here in the UK, that's a little tricky because acting contracts here don't easily allow for this process. So how do you circumnavigate this problem and still find a way of designing around the actor's work in a UK rehearsal period? Well, in Cheek by Jowl, that period has to be at the beginning of the rehearsal period, of a normal rehearsal period. So um, what we used to do and still do is basically give, give us two weeks of playing around, of discovering things, and then it has to be designed fast. And that's quite trying, particularly for people who have to execute the costumes in the, and, and the sets. That can be quite trying. It means, basically, things tend to be simple, relatively simple, but they need to be simple anyway because we're touring and things need to be portable. But yes, the huge advantage of having that time period between the, the woods and rehearsal is that that can happen in that period of time. But otherwise, you just need to be able to cram it in, you know, in as much as you can. So this is very different from the way that theatre design usually happens in the UK, where a designer will often have made a set box and a completed set of costume designs by the first day of rehearsals. How did you go about shaping a process with Declan, which is particular to your preferred way of working? Is it something that you've had to find together over time? It's found over time in the sense because Cheek by Jowl, we've created and made Cheek by Jowl be a vehicle that can cope with that process because that's the best way we, we like to work. And we're working with bigger theatres, and we have often done so, that is, of course, much more difficult to do because most bigger theatres require pieces of scenery or large objects to, to be designed in advance. It almost always has happened that I've gone in with an idea and come out with a completely different idea during the rehearsal period. I mean, but part of the process I've found is kind of working out what only I as the designer have to solve that can't be left to the acting company. And you learn with experience, basically. It seems like such an exciting way to work, to leave yourself open to what the company is giving you in rehearsal and then design responsibly rather than pre-deciding everything in advance, which is a natural outcome of the British theatre system due to the tradition of much shorter rehearsal processes here than in, say, Russia or Italy. When you sit back and think about it, fixing a design in advance doesn't actually seem that productive because you end up having to paste the play on top of a design in which the actors have had no input. Yes, and I find it um, it's clear when that has happened, when you watch productions, and it, it is true, I think, that design can make a production and it can often, you think, too many decisions have been made and kind of everything has been preordained. How I see it is to keep out of the way, to allow, as it were, the space to be imagined by the actor rather than providing the concrete space itself. Could you tell us a little more about how you collaborate with Declan? What does your preparation for rehearsals look like together? The way Declan and I work together is quite unusual because we very rarely have meetings. We rarely, rarely actually discuss what we're going to do. 
And, and of course, that's simply not the case. On the limited occasions I've worked elsewhere, of course, you have formal meetings, you present models, um, you present drawings, and that's as it should be and is necessary. But Declan and I quite quickly, I think, developed a sort of shorthand that we didn't have any of that formal um, process. And, and actually, he hates um, looking at model boxes. He only really understands when it comes to actually working with the actors in the space, which is a little bit of a burden and a little bit of a worry because I have to get it right because he doesn't really experience it until we get in the space. But experience over years has allowed me to kind of predict how things are going to work and if they will work. We discussed in our episode on Measure for Measure the way that you changed Declan's initial hunch about how you'd go about doing the play. Does the opposite ever happen to you? Well, the problem with working with Declan sometimes is that he has very good ideas, but very late on in, in the process. And he notoriously hates looking at model boxes, but only really likes um, working with actors in the space. So consequently, he often has ideas rather late on in the process, sometimes like weeks into rehearsal he'll come up with this blindingly good idea which you think oh my god that is a good idea so somehow you have to execute it so you go sort of heart in mouth to see angie burns who's doing the costumes probably or the technical director or and say look we have this idea that everybody's going to be dressed in x and they look at you for a moment and then they say okay okay (laughs) I remember the Wexford Festival once, um, years ago, which is like you have one week's rehearsal and then you're on stage. And he had this idea in the middle of the week's rehearsal, the only week's rehearsal there was, to dress everybody in dinner jackets, I think it was. Or, and that was problematic, um, which we dealt with, managed to deal with. I, I, I think the wardrobe supervisor was probably brilliant. When I went in one day and said, look, I'm sorry, we have to have 30 dinner jackets like tomorrow. I think she would sort of blanch slightly, but then we managed. And what was the show? Uh, Mahogany by Brecht. I've noticed with your most recent designs that you often include an extra entrance somewhere centre stage as well as from the wings. I suppose much like in Shakespeare's Globe or the stages of the first Greek tragedies, which had large doors upstage centre. So what appeals to you about this configuration? It's not so much having a centre entrance. There's the potential of a centre entrance there. But then the actors can come out and make an entrance from the side. But they're basically the fu- they're funneled in from behind an object and then come out from either side or through the centre. But it just helps. I think it helps. And I've used that several times recently it stops that terrible sense of actors coming on from the wings. They still can do a stage left or stage right entrance, but they're being funneled on through one centre entrance at the back. And that takes away that terrible death of actors coming in from undefined places out of darkness. It's not really an attachment to a centre entrance. It's an attachment to not having actors push on from the wings. And has that got anything to do with the importance of thresholds, which we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, giving the actors a really clear divide between here and there, inside and outside, on stage and off stage? Well, I think that's definitely true. That I think actors appreciate the fact that they're either clearly on or 
clearly off. But there's also a certain magic in that they appear from kind of nowhere. If they, they all come from the center and fan out like in the Night of the Burning Pestle, they come out from a single point almost like um, quite magically from the center. And you don't quite know where they've come from. It's a process that I'm sure I will use again. <laughs> Each week, we focus on a play or scene to examine in depth. And this week, we're going to talk about Nick's design for Shakespeare's The Winter's Tale, which in the last few years has done a world tour with British actors. Declan and Nick also did a Russian production of it a while back, but we're going to focus on this most recent version in this podcast. You can see Nick's designs for this production on the Cheek by Jell website if you want to find out more. For a quick recap of the story, it starts in Sicily where King Leontes is consumed by jealous suspicion that his pregnant wife Hermione is having an affair with his best friend Polixenes, king of Bohemia. They have a young son, Mamilius, who dies from distress when his mother is put on trial. Hermione then apparently dies in childbirth, and her loyal friends sneak the baby girl Perdita out of the palace and take her to Bohemia, where she's raised secretly by a shepherd. When Perdita grows up, not knowing her true identity, she falls in love with Florizel, Polixenes' son. They elope together to Sicily, where Perdita's identity is finally revealed and she's reunited with Leontes. In the end, Paulina, Hermione's friend, reveals that she's been keeping a statue of Hermione. When Leontes and Perdita encounter it, it magically comes to life, and so mother and daughter are reunited. So Nick, could you start by describing your design for the play? Uh, my design for The Winter's Tale is a big box, a slatted box, if you like, with panels which fall down and crash onto the ground. And that stems from the very first conversation I had with Declan, which was the event of the play should be, and that's where I've worked from, the death of Mamilius, which is cataclysmic. And so the, the panels that clad this box crash down and reveal the dead prince there. And in the text, it's very weak, actually. Shakespeare doesn't help. He does have someone coming on announcing that the prince is dead. And so the, the, the nature of the event has to be in the horrified reaction of the actors. But if you have the whole set collapse, then kind of the cataclysmic nature of the event is done in quite a concrete way. So that, that design really stemmed from that one brief conversation that we had, and I can't remember where it took place, but some months before. And that meant that actually I did design that before we started rehearsal to reveal that particular one event. And then in rehearsal, since we did have the box, we could discover how else to use it. Because we had this other idea that Bohemia was set in Ireland. So the idea was that the, the Act 4 sheep shearing scene should take place inside and it should be raining outside so that the actors come in through the, through the rain. So the other advantage of having this box is we could bring rain onto the stage so the actors came through the entrance under umbrellas into the space of the sheep shearing. Yes, I remember some excellent Wellington boots. Yes, exactly. Yes. Now, The Winter's Tale has become famous for some challenges for any company, particularly when it comes to design. The first is that you have to switch between two countries, Sicily and Bohemia, which have radically different moods and atmospheres. 
How did you go about doing that? I think it was achieved basically by the actors and very and very little addition from my point of view. I mean, I think the basic dynamic was between the contrast of the rather formal court and the entire company transforming into Irish country people. Um, so you had Joy Richardson, for example, playing Paulina as a courtier, um, transforming into Mopsa or Dorcas. And you had Orlando playing Leontes in the background, playing his guitar. So you had the entire company playing the absolute inverse of the court. And then the arrival of Autolycus as a sort of Jerry Springer type TV show, that, if I remember rightly, was a very last minute Declan idea. That was certainly not pre-planned. So that was one of Declan's last-minute discoveries? Yes, exactly. That didn't require anything physical, but it was quite a lot to take on board, that basically the sheep-shearing scene was going to turn into Jerry Springer. Interestingly, of course, somebody pointed out recently that it actually was a direct parallel to the courtroom scene earlier when Hermione is condemned. And, of course, you don't realise that at the time, but that's actually what we, what we were doing. Is that part of the perk of the job, when people point things out in your work and reveal new things to yourself about it? Absolutely wonderful, yes, because, of course, half the time you don't know what you're doing. You're just acting on the spur of the moment. Often I found in design it's very frustrating that the most striking images are the ones you never plan. They just happen accidentally. And that's quite frustrating because you can spend a lot of time designing things and it's sort of... Okay, it works, but, you know. And then something very simple happens, and you think, oh, my God, that's amazing. So the second big challenge in A Winter's Tale is that you have to make 16 years pass in only two minutes in a speech delivered by an actor playing the part of time, in this case, the actor Grace Andrews. So how did you go about solving this problem? Well, I have to admit that um, it was based on the idea that we had in St. Petersburg, which worked brilliantly, I think, then, in that there was this actress playing a little old grandmother, Babushka, who, as it were, lived on the stage and swept the stage. And she swept the action off when time changed and then revealed herself as a 22-year-old girl. So the idea of the old woman transforming herself into a young woman implied time, or the reverse of time, if you like. And so we, we, we use slightly the same thing. Grace played time as a little old woman who then reveals herself to be this beautiful young woman. And at the same time as revolving the set, the box, to imply the change of time. now reach the part of the podcast where we answer listeners' questions. And do remember, if you have any questions for Declan or Nick, or want us to talk more about anything that you've heard in these podcasts, get in touch on Cheat by Jell's social media, and we will answer them in future episodes. Today's question, Nick, is, are there any designers, past or present, who have influenced your work? I think many, many. I, I think there are all sorts of wonderful designers. And um, I wish sometimes I was anything like as good as they are. And I think of people like Maria Bjornsson, who, who died, Philip Prowse, who is up at um, the sits in Glasgow for years, and amazing work. Ralph Koltai, designers like Chloe Obolensky now, still working. There are many, many, many designers. And everything you see, of course, is an influence of, in one respect or another. What was it, for example, about Philip Prowse's work at the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, which so inspired you? It was extraordinary 
extraordinarily exciting work in, at the sits. Visually, absolutely stunning. Every production was a complete contrast, but at the same time, each design suited the piece remarkably well. So that has left me with uh, amazing images in my mind, which have been extremely influential. And that's where we're ending for today. Thank you very much, Nick, and have a great week. Thanks. All right. Speak soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Cheek by Gel's podcast. Not true, but useful. Tune in next week when Declan Donnellan will be talking about his approach to what he calls the predicament in life and the theatre. In the meantime, if you want to find out more about any of the plays that we discussed today, check out the podcast notes for links to archive material on the Cheek by Jell website. I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're hearing was composed by Pamela Kimkin. Until next week. <laughs>